Hello and welcome to WTF is Fio, a podcast for healthcare professionals and students of the healthcare professions. Hello and welcome to WTF is Atrial Fibrillation. My name is Alex. I'm a paramedic and a medical student. And I'm Derek. Uh, I'm also a medical student with a background in biomed. I'm Jack. I'm a paramedic. Hi, I'm Chris. I'm also a medical student and I also have a background in biomed. Let's start off with Derek giving us a brief introduction into AF before we dive into it. So for those listeners who want a basic definition of AF, AF is essentially when the electrical activity of the heart, which controls its regular beating, becomes chaotic. So the heart needs to be in an organized way so that it can fill with blood and eject that blood fully. However, during atrial fibrillation, this process is inefficient, so the heart cannot properly deliver oxygen as it should, and this results in extra strain on the heart. Atrial fibrillation, or more commonly referred to as AF, is one of the most common arrhythmias, with a lifetime risk of around 25%. An episode of fast AF can cause an acutely unwell patient that is potentially hemodynamically unstable, while long-term uncontrolled or poorly controlled AF has substantial population health consequences, with increased rates of hospitalisation, a two-fold increased risk of premature mortality, and an increased risk of heart failure, severe stroke, and myocardial infarction. So let's get into a bit more about what AF is with Derek. AF is basically an uncoordinated and chaotic pattern of electrical activity in the atria. So this suppresses or replaces the normal sinus mechanism. AF is a supraventricular tachyarrhythmia with uncoordinated atrial electrical activation. The consequence then is ineffective atrial contraction. Some electrocardiographic characteristics include irregularly irregular RR intervals, where atrioventricular conduction is not impaired. Um, You also have absence of distinct repeating P waves and irregular atrial activations. Okay, so first I'll talk about the normal sinus mechanism. Um, This is dictated by the sinoatrial node, which was discovered in the early 1900s. It's a crescent or banana-shaped bundle of myocytes, which is heart muscle, and uh, it ranges from 10 to 30 millimeters in length. This is located at the junction of the crista terminalis in the upper wall of the right atrium and the opening of the superior vena cava. It is electrically insulated from the rest of the atrial myocytes by connective tissue, which allows it to fulfill its role as the pacemaker of the heart. The SA nodal myocytes depolarize at an intrinsic rate of between 60 and 100 beats per minute. This is quicker than other cardiac cells, and therefore the SA node, the sinoatrial node, becomes the natural pacemaker of the heart. It's important to note here, though, in a normal heart, automaticity, which is the ability of cardiac cells to generate spontaneous action potentials, is normally confined to the SA node and other specialized conductive tissue. And the SA node normally dictates this due to having the fastest intrinsic rate. Once the SA node has generated an actual potential, it leaves via pores within the connective tissue surrounding it, and it then spreads through the atrium. There are various tracts within the atria. They lead from the SA node and are dedicated conductive tissue that allow for the rapid spreading of the action potential. This occurs throughout both right and left atria to ensure that a synchronous contraction occurs. Brockman's bundle is one important tract as it acts as a rapid route for the depolarization to get into the left atrium. Ultimately, though, the action potential progresses down to the atrioventricular node from where it then progresses to the ventricles. In this podcast, we're not going to focus on the rest of the conduction pathway as AF is considered a supraventricular arrhythmia, 
It is a pathology of the atrial conduction system, mostly. Atrial fibrillation is the result of chaotic, disorganized electrical activity, and this disorganized rhythm translates to ineffective contraction of the atria. Fibrillation in this context means abnormal and erratic twitching of the heart muscle. This can result in an atrial action potential rate of between 300 and 600 beats per minute. However, the AV node cannot conduct this many impulses. Hence, it acts as a bottleneck, limiting the ventricular rate. Therefore, an untreated AF would average between 160 and 180 beats per minute. This is typically slower in older patients. In the case of AF, ventricles are not being filled fully by coordinated contraction of the atria, so cardiac output is reduced by 10 to 20%. In terms of the classification of AF, it's classified according to the pattern of episodes. So there's three types of episodes. One type is paroxysmal AF. This is where episodes last longer than 30 seconds, but less than 7 days, and often less than 48 hours. These are self-terminating and recurrent. Another type is persistent AF. Here episodes last longer than 7 days, and spontaneous termination of the arrhythmia is actually unlikely to occur after this time. Or the episodes last less than 7 days, but require pharmacological or electrical cardioversion. Chris is going to talk about electrical cardioversion later on in the podcast. A third type of classification for AF is a permanent AF. Here, AF fails to terminate using cardioversion, or AF is terminated but relapses within 24 hours. You can also have long-standing AF, usually longer than one year, in which cardioversion has not been indicated or attempted. Sometimes this is called accepted permanent AF. There's also an alternative way of classifying AF, which is by classifying it as valvular or non-valvular. In patients with mitral stenosis or a mechanical heart valve who subsequently develop AF, there's an assumption that the valvular pathology itself has led to the AF. However, the other classification, non-valvular AF, is from what we understand AF without valve pathology, or sometimes quite unhelpfully, with other valve pathologies such as mitral regurgitation or aortic stenosis. So to clarify, the valvular AF um, is caused either by a mitral stenosis or a mechanical heart valve and subsequent AF development, and a non-valvular AF can involve valve pathology, such as mitral regurgitation or aortic stenosis, but importantly, it's not mitral stenosis or a mechanical heart valve cause. Thank you very much for that, Derek. We have now gone over what AF is. Let's take a closer look at why it happens and the underlying pathologies that result in the normal sinus mechanism being usurped by this chaotic, disorganized atrial activity that Derek just described. Firstly, it's important to state from the outset that in terms of electrophysiological changes, AF is not completely understood, and there is some variation between patients. When talking about the pathophysiology of arrhythmias, it's important to understand the concept of triggers and substrates. As Derek described, AF is characterized by a very rapid, uncoordinated atrial activity. For this rhythm to be initiated, there needs to be a trigger. However, for it to be sustained, there needs to be substrates. The trigger for AF is normally a rapid-firing ectopic focus, or foci, most commonly from within the pulmonary veins or close to where the pulmonary veins enter the left atrium. Focal ectopic firing can be caused by many factors, but for simplicity's sake, we'll keep the list short. One possible cause is ionic handling abnormalities, specifically calcium ions. Another cause could be from the autonomic nervous system via too much sympathetic activation of the atria. In the normal population, atrial ectopics can occur, but do not evolve any further due to the dominant force of the sinoatrial node 
ensuring that its beat controls the atria. It can sometimes take a while for the SA node to re-establish its dominance, and this is when paroxysmal AF can occur. Now onto substrates. In this context, substrates are electrophysiological, mechanical, or anatomical characteristics within the atria that can sustain AF. Development of a substrate usually includes both electrical and structural elements of atrial and cellular remodeling. At the cellular level, I find it most simple to think about as tissue heterogeneity generated by stress. In other words, cells in the atria develop different properties due to underlying pathologies I'll go on to discuss later. This heterogeneity between cells can cause one neighbouring myocyte to conduct action potentials faster than its parallel cell, or perhaps have a shorter refractory period than its neighbour. For a substrate to have a long-term effect, there needs to be true remodelling. A good example of this would be the process of fibrosis, and when it comes to electrical remodelling, an example would be that of ionic channel dysfunction. The culmination of a substrate is the formation of a functional re-entry circuit, as this, with the addition of an ectopic focus, allows for the initiation and sustainment of this arrhythmia. Now to add a little confusion, the trigger is not always a focal ectopic firing from the pulmonary veins. It is the most common location, however the trigger location could theoretically come from anywhere within the atrium. This is important when it comes to treatments such as ablation, that I believe Chris will talk about later. Some causes of AF also appear not to have these automatic focuses. One explanation of triggers in cases such as this is the multiple wavelet theory, in which an action potential, instead of flowing through the atrium in a coordinated fashion, gets broken up due to cellular heterogeneity, forming these smaller wavelets that can collide with each other, creating daughter wavelets. These chaotic small impulses are then capable of interacting with established substrates and can cause a sustained arrhythmia. So to summarise the electrophysiological aspect of why AF happens, because I tend to find it quite confusing, let's just recap a little bit. AF is triggered most often by a rapid firing impulse from the pulmonary veins. Those impulses are then recirculated and sustained within the atria by a re-entry mechanism. These are circuits within the atria facilitated by substrates, which allow impulses to proceed in a circular fashion and to complete a self-sustaining circuit. This is what generates the chaotic electrical activity that then translates to the fibrillation of the atrial muscles, reducing its ability to pump blood into the ventricles. So now we have dealt with the underlying pathophysiology, let's look at how the tissue of the atria can become stressed and result in the desynchronized quivering that we see on the gross anatomical scale. Essentially, anything that can cause raised atrial pressure, increased atrial muscle mass, atrial fibrosis, infiltration or inflammation of the atria can cause local cardiac myocytes to become stressed or affect their ability to create or conduct an impulse. This will ultimately result in AF. One of the most common conditions that can cause this is hypertension, as it raises both atrial pressure and atrial muscle mass. Other common causative conditions are coronary artery disease and myocardial infarctions. Both of these conditions can cause ischemia that then result in fibrosis. I'm now going to list other more general etiologies that can be divided into cardiac, non-cardiac, and lifestyle. So let's go over the cardiac risk factors first. This includes heart failure, rheumatic valvular disease, either dilation or hypertrophy of the heart, pre-excitation syndromes such as Wolf-Parkinson-White, sick sinus syndrome, many congenital heart diseases, and any acute inflammatory disease of the heart such as pericarditis or myocarditis. Now onto non-cardiac risk factors. There are things like acute infection, such as adjacent pneumonia, autonomic neuronal dysfunction, such as vaguely induced AF, 
electrolyte abnormalities, including hypokalemia and hyponatremia, pulmonary embolism, thyrotoxicosis, and diabetes. And finally, some lifestyle etiologies include excessive caffeine intake, alcohol abuse, especially short episodes of binge drinking, obesity, smoking, and iatrogenic causes, most typically in the form of medication exposure, with the most common culprits being thyroxine and bronchodilators. Now, I've just given us a rather robust list of etiologies for AF. It's important to remember that while rheumatic heart disease, thyrotoxicosis, and alcohol intoxication are considered classical causes of AF, they are far less common than hypertension and heart failure as the underlying cause. A final etiology that didn't make the list is AF itself. Often AF causes more AF. It tends to progress over time from being a trigger-driven disease initiated by a precipitant pathology. This initial paroxysmal AF can then start to develop functional atrial substrates, for example fibrosis. This then causes persistent AF, described by Derek's classification earlier. Eventually, persistent AF will result in predominant structural remodeling, resulting in ultimately a permanent form of arrhythmia. Thank you, Alex, for talking about the pathophysiology of AF. But how do we actually find AF? Well, about a third of all of AF diagnoses start as an incidental finding, meaning these patients present with a completely unrelated issue. The others often present to healthcare providers with palpitations, dyspnea or chest pain. Everyone with an irregular pulse when palpated should be investigated for a possible AF. Um, other symptoms often associated include syncope and dizziness. On top of these symptoms, long-term AF patients often suffer with a reduced exercise tolerance, a general malaise, and sometimes a decrease in mental status. The hallmark feature of AF is the irregularly irregular pulse. This can differentiate it from ectopic beats and heart blocks, which can also present with a repeating irregular pulse. With these presentations, it is important to be aware that an accurate assessment of pulse rate and regularity may require auscultation or palpation of a central pulse due to a chance of decreased perfusion. Jack, you've mentioned two things there. So uh, palpitations and also the irregular, irregular rhythm. Would you mind just quickly talking through how patients might describe those? Yeah, of course. It's funny you should ask, actually. Uh, palpitations are often described as heart racing or fluttering in their chest. It can last seconds through to hours and occur at rest as well as during activity. Um, it may be helpful when a patient describes those palpitations to get them to tap it out how they're feeling it. Um, and then you can get a feel for the regularity and the speed of the heart. Um, there are a few symptoms that can suggest an acute hemodynamic instability such as syncope, acute pulmonary edema, myocardial ischemia on an ECG, and symptomatic hypertension. Um, these patients should be monitored closely and treated quickly, which Chris will explain a little later. When symptomatic AF is present, it will most often present as a tachycardia, although it can sometimes present as a bradycardia, particularly in older people with age-related cardiac conduction diseases. The first presentation of AF may be with a stroke, heart failure or cardiac ischemia. Um, these are all podcast topics in their own right and will be covered at a later date. However, when assessing AF, it is advisable to look for focal neurological deficits such as hemiplegia or dysphasia. Also, obviously, assessing for chest pain and pulmonary edema as part of your normal A2E assessment. Um, as Alex has already mentioned, AF is often a trigger disease. Therefore, excluding these precipitating factors is important in managing new presentations of AF. 
basic A&E assessments, including blood gases, chest X-rays, ECGs, and just a good history taking will enable you to exclude most of these, such as infections, MI, pericarditis, anemia, metabolic disturbances, and pulmonary conditions. Uh, differentials to consider is atrial flutter, uh, defined by a sawtooth pattern of regular atrial activation on the ECG, although it is treated the same as AF, um, so not too much of a differential. Ectopic beats that can originate from either the atria or the ventricles, uh, if they're coming quite quickly, sometimes may cause a, a confusion as to how you're feeling a pulse. Um, a narrow complex tachycardia or an SVT and sometimes complete heart block. Um, the examination approach, therefore, is uh, an A to E assessment followed by a 12 lead ECG and identifying any of the consequential conditions. Um, the diagnosis can be made off the back of two key findings, the absence of discernible P waves and irregularly irregular ventricular rate on an ECG. Whilst we have the ECG, we can also look for other conditions that can coincide with AF. So AF plus a second or third degree AV block can present with a slow ventricular rate, often below 50, and often presenting uh, quite poorly, maybe with symptomatic hypotension. Ischemia presenting with ST changes or T-wave inversions may be present on an ECG2, and that can indicate a possible acute coronary syndrome cause for your AF. Um, important to get a troponin there. Structural changes may also show, such as hypertrophy and atrial enlargement. Finally, primary Electrical disorders such as Brugada syndrome and Wolf-Parkinson-White are also related to AF. Jack, those are some very long words and names. Would you mind just saying those again and also just giving me a quick explanation as to what they are? Uh, so Brugada syndrome is an ECG abnormality with a high incidence of sudden death in patients with a structurally normal heart. The etiology of Brugada is due to a mutation in the cardiac sodium channel gene. This is often referred to as a sodium channelopathy, and the diagnostic criteria include a right bundle branch block with an ST segment elevation in leads V1 to V3. Also, Wolf-Parkinson-White, which is a pre-excitation syndrome. The PR interval is always really small, so less than 120 milliseconds, and it has a delta wave, which is a a slanting slow rise of the initial portion of the QRS. This is a structural abnormality um, with a congenital accessory pathway between the ventricles and the atria, which can cause either an anterior grade or retrograde impulse, subsequently causing atrioventricular reentry tachycardias or a really fast heart rate. As Jack just mentioned, two conditions that are very closely related to AF a heart failure and stroke. And before we move on to talking about investigations, I thought it would be good to have a look at why we can't talk about AF for 10 minutes without bringing up these two conditions. Firstly, let's talk about thromboembolic events. People with AF have a greater risk of stroke and thromboembolism than people without AF. These associated strokes or thromboembolic events tend to be more severe ischemic strokes or longer transient ischemic attacks than those that originate from carotid disease. This is possibly due to the thrombus being larger in people with AF. The question is, why does atrial fibrillation result in thrombus formation? The most basic explanation is a century-old hypothesis that fibrillation causes stasis of the blood in the atrium, especially within the left atrial appendage, 
This causes thrombus formation and then embolization into the left ventricle and subsequently up to the brain. While this is fairly neat and definitely a predominant cause of stroke in AF, it doesn't take into account the whole picture or coincide with all of the epidemiological evidence about these two pathologies' coexistence. Firstly, besides causing stroke, AF is also simply just associated with many of the same risk factors, including age, male sex, hypertension, diabetes, valvular disease, heart failure, chronic kidney disease, inflammatory disorder, sleep apnea, and tobacco use, just to name a few coexisting risk factors. Beyond this, updated models now emphasize the importance of systemic and atrial substrates, as well as the dysarrhythmia, as a cause of thrombus formation. As I've already spoken about, both abnormal atrial tissue and atrial cardiomyopathy are developed during the onset of AF, and these both play a role in thrombogenesis. Now onto the other main concomitant condition, heart failure. From the outset here, it is helpful to remember that heart failure can both be the cause of AF and can subsequently decompensate due to AF, or AF itself can trigger the tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy that degenerates into heart failure. On top of this, heart failure and AF in combination increase the risk of stroke, hospitalisation and all-cause mortality. There are multiple mechanisms by which heart failure can lead to AF, some of which I briefly touched on earlier. To keep it simple, these mechanisms include atrial pressure overload and enlargement, altered myocardial conduction, maladaptive gene expression and overall structural remodelling. On the other hand, AF can lead to heart failure decompensation or be the primary stimulus for the development of heart failure due to the lack of atrial systole and the irregular duration of ventricular diastole, as well as the decreased blood pressure, stroke volume, and overall reduced cardiac output, making the heart, and specifically the left ventricle, work much harder. So hopefully that explains why those two keep cropping up. And now Chris will go on to talk about investigations that we do after the ECG. So before moving on to further investigations, I just want to reiterate what Jack said, that the diagnostic criteria for AF are based on ECG findings. These are the absence of P waves and inconsistent RR intervals. The other investigations provide information for the baseline of the patient, explore secondary conditions associated with AF, and look for precipitant pathology. So now let's just walk through what our default patient workup would be for a new patient presenting with AF. So first, a full blood count and CRP, looking for things like anemia, infections and inflammation, a clotting profile to establish a baseline and further inform management, no spoilers for future treatment sections, kidney function and urea and electrolytes, this helps exclude renal impairment and especially any electrolyte imbalances that could interact with cardiac function, as spoken about earlier. And thyroid function test, as thyrotoxicosis is a textbook trigger for AF. We're now going to move on to a chest x-ray. This is routine for most cardiac presentations, as it may show cardiomegaly, infections and effusions. And if we're honest, if you're already in hospital, you probably already had one. Next is ultrasound, more specifically transthoracic echocardiogram or echo. There are a few different guidelines that outline which patients with a new AF should receive an echo. These include the European Society of Cardiology and NICE. The European Society of Cardiology requests an echo in almost all patients with a new AF. 
Nice have a much more specific and wordy criteria for who to ultrasound when they present with AF. The guideline is more focused on whether the outcomes will impact long-term management. So in patients where rhythm control is going to be required, patients in which there is a high risk of underlying structural or functional heart disease, or those who need refinement in their clinical risk stratification for antithrombotic therapy. Next, we can look through some more selective tests that will be important in certain clinical contexts and the rationale for their inclusion. So firstly, cardiac troponin, often referred to as TROP-T, which is a marker of cardiac cell injury. This is elevated in infarction or acute coronary syndrome, so it can be useful in differentiating these as underlying causes. It is also elevated in prolonged tachycardia or post-cardia version, but not to the same degree as ACS. An ABG, this would be part of the management of an acutely unstable patient as part of the A2E assessment. Beta natriuretic peptide, or BNP, which is a marker elevated in heart failure, LFTs to further establish a baseline for coagulation, and it's important for guiding appropriate treatment, i.e. antiarrhythmics like amiodarone are contraindicated in the presence of liver dysfunction. And our last blood test, the ESR, so erythrocyte sedimentation rate. This is a good marker for early identification of autoimmune causes, such as rheumatic heart disease, which can contribute to the underlying pathophysiogenesis of AF. These last investigations do not form part of the standard profile, but may be requested by a specialist to collate further information. So a transesophageal echocardiogram is conducted if the echo is insufficient or to identify focal pathology that could contribute to the AF. Inpatient telemetry or halter monitoring to help titrate drugs used for rate and rhythm control and investigate non-permanent AF. So testing, if you were listening to Derek's classification, this would be paroxysmal or persistent. A coronary angiography, CT, or stress testing can also be requested. Late gadolinium contrast-enhanced cardiac magnetic resonance might be requested. Chris, what is that? Ah, Alex, how interesting that you asked. So this is a technique used to categorise cardiac tissue, and in particular, the assessment of regional scar formation and myocardial fibrosis. Sounds quite useful for identifying those primary foci and substrates, Alex. And finally, a couple of imaging techniques used to investigate potential thromboembolic events. So a brain CT or MRI to investigate the stroke or TIA. And finally, a CTPA to look for PE. Now let's tie this together into a classic example of patients presenting with new onset AF. A 60-year-old man caused 909 due to a new onset of palpitations and shortness of breath. He has a history of hypertension, type 2 diabetes and angina. His symptoms came on three hours ago. He also notes that he is feeling tired, anxious and slightly dizzy on minor exertions such as climbing the stairs. Physical examination shows an irregularly irregular radial pulse rate at 110, a blood pressure of 110 over 70 
and respirations of 20 breaths per minute. His heart sounds are irregular, but there are no additional heart sounds or murmurs audible. There are also no thrills or heaves. With a history of angina and the patient presenting with tachycardia and palpitations, myocardial ischemia should be on the radar. Performing a thorough systems review is needed to rule out precipitating illnesses, or this may just be a result of pre-existing risk factors. The ECG shows a chaotic baseline with no distinct P waves and irregular RR intervals are found. There are no signs of acute ischemia with normal ST segments and T waves, and there is no delta wave. The confirmed new onset of symptomatic AF, this patient will need transport and treatment. Further investigations will be required, as we spoke about previously, in the local emergency department. Now, before we get on to the treatments, let's speak a little bit about the red flags or things to look out for in an AF patient. On top of the aforementioned emergency illnesses like stroke, pulmonary embolus and MI, some patients present with sudden onset of palpitations and breathlessness and are found to be tachycardic in atrial fibrillation. You may hear some clinicians refer to this presentation as fast AF. However, this term should be avoided because all patients with AF have rapid and chaotic atrial activity. Instead, this presentation is AF with a rapid ventricular response, sometimes written as AF with RVR. This can lead to myocardial ischemia due to hemodynamic insufficiency, resulting in cardiogenic shock. The underperfusion combined with ventricular underfilling significantly reduces cardiac output and decreases perfusion, become a potentially life-threatening illness. Now we're going to move on to the treatment options and how to fix it. AF can present in many different ways, as previously discussed. It can present with an acute history, chronic history, or as part of a secondary picture, like stroke or MI. Therefore, the treatment protocol will differ between these presentations. We will look at the core components to treating AF and its associated conditions and look at a few common presentations. Firstly, the core principles, which are laid out in the atrial fibrillation better care pathway using an ABC mnemonic. A stands for anticoagulation, B for better symptom management, and C for cardiovascular and comorbidity optimization. Next, we will look at the various treatment options available and their general mechanical principles. It's important to acknowledge that these treatments are never given in isolation, and I will go through the treatment algorithms after outlining the core concepts. Firstly, electrical cardioversion. So this is to shock the heart into normal sinus rhythm, and this includes both external and internal cardioversion. Electrical cardioversion can be used in an acute setting, our local guidance starting at an escalating at 100 joules in a biphasic shock, or to correct the arrhythmia in a chronic setting. Please refer to your local guidance for each protocol. An explanation as for how cardioversion restores normal sinus rhythm is the critical mass hypothesis. This states that a critical mass of myocardium is required to maintain atrial or ventricular fibrillation, and this is uniformly depolarized in cardioversion to terminate the arrhythmia. Next, we've got pharmacological cardioversion, so the administration of drugs aimed at restoring normal sinus rhythm. 
either class 1C or class 3 antiarrhythmic agents. And these work via a variety of mechanisms, including lengthening the refractory period and disrupting the automaticity of individual cardiomyocytes, therefore enabling the SA node to re-establish dominance. The standard drug for this is amiodarone. Others are available with variable benefits of shorter half-lights and better profiles in certain patient groups. As an example, amiodarone is contraindicated in patients with liver failure, as discussed earlier. Moving on to anticoagulation. So used precardioversion to negate the effect of stasis caused by shocking the heart and used long-term to reduce the risk of thromboembolic events as highlighted by Alex in the pathophysiology section. Anticoagulants come in many forms, and these include heparin, anoxaparin, doax, and morphine. Many factors affect this decision-making, and this is a topic that could be discussed in its own right. Next, rate and rhythm control, so used to improve cardiac function. Drugs for this include beta blockers, for example, bisoprolol, calcium channel blockers, for example, verapamil, and secondary options like digoxin. One of the benefits of these drugs is to slow the rate of cardiac contraction and enable better passive drainage of the blood into the ventricles to improve cardiac output. Left atrial appendage occlusion, a fairly uncommon treatment used as an alternative to anticoagulation when the contraindications of bleeding outweigh the risks. So a plug or filter is implanted percutaneously via transeptal catheterization into the left atrial appendage. As we've mentioned previously, this is an anatomical area of the heart renowned for greater stasis of the blood and therefore a hotbed of clot formation. And finally, for our treatment options, we'll quickly talk through surgical ablation via the Cox-Maze procedure. So using percutaneous technique, a series of lesions are cut into the myocardium or tissue of the heart. These lesions are created using radiofrequency ablation or cryotherapy. The lesions are placed to structurally disable the propagation of AF, effectively creating roadblocks that help direct the traffic. Examples of these lesions include circular lesions around the antrum of the pulmonary veins, the floor and the roof ablation lines. Next up is scoring systems and when to treat. So scoring systems provide the clinician a statistical risk profile which can inform the decision. As already discussed, a significant risk in AF is that of thrombotic events, hence the need to anticoagulate. In this case, the two opposing risks are thrombotic events or clotting versus bleeding, and these must be considered. The CHAD-VAS scoring tool, which considers various clinical features, age and sex, is used to assess the risk of stroke. The ORBIT or HAS-BLED scores, again considering clinical features and age, estimate the risk of a major bleeding event for patients on anticoagulation. If you want to look at the scoring tools in more depth or want to calculate them easily, we recommend the app MDCalc. Other scoring systems are available until sponsorship is provided. When calculated, these scoring tools provide the clinician an aid in the risk-benefit decision of anticoagulation. It is important to note that bleeding risk scores should not exclude anticoagulation in isolation and that bleeding risk is dynamic and requires regular reassessment. Finally, on the treatment section, we will look briefly at the treatment protocols for new onset AF. 
In an acute setting, the first question is, is the patient hemodynamically stable or are there indications for urgent DC cardioversion? These include signs or symptoms of an acute MI or stroke or AF alongside a pre-excitation syndrome such as Wolf-Parkinson-White. Let's look through the urgent protocol. Please refer to local guidance for all of these protocols, but we'll highlight a few points to consider. So emergency electrical cardioversion should not be delayed regardless of the duration of onset of the arrhythmia. Anesthetic support will be required to sedate conscious patients and therefore enable DC cardioversion. The anticoagulation status needs to be checked, and this will enable risk-benefit decisions to be discussed, as previously mentioned. Amiodarone can be considered for acute control of the heart. And finally, you're going to need to refer to cardiology if the patient is young and you suspect they could have an underlying structural heart disease, they have a pre-excitation syndrome, they've got a valvular heart disease that's associated with AF, or you suspect heart failure. The last protocols we'll look through are those for new onset, stable, chronic or persistent AF. The protocols for these depend on the other secondary pathologies present and follow the atrial fibrillation better care pathway. This will mostly be managed by a specialist in the field. First line for these will be anticoagulation or antiplatelet therapy plus rate control and consider rhythm control if symptoms persist or rate control is not achieved. In this, you're also going to consider cardioversion, amiodarone and catheter ablation and the second line of left atrial appendage occlusion. It's recommended that all new AFs that do not spontaneously revert should have one attempted cardioversion, either electrical or chemical. Electrical is preferred in most cases, especially in younger patients with no symptoms. Some of the benefits of pharmacological cardioversion include the um, avoided risk of sedation, but the weaknesses are that there's drug side effects present, including hypertension and prolongation of the QT interval. And due to the half-lives of drugs, there's a longer need for telemetric monitoring. Another risk is that the AF may convert to atrial flutter. Now that we've had a look at treatments, let's look at who it affects, otherwise known as epidemiology, everyone's favourite topic. And we'll also look at the predicted outcome of AF and how to prevent it. The three main epidemiological factors are genetics, age and race. And studies have shown that a family history of AF is associated with a 40% increased risk of a first relative developing the same condition. Another non-modifiable risk factor is age. The prevalence of AF is 0.5% in people aged 50 to 59 years and 8.8% in people aged 80 to 89. There is also a higher occurrence of AF in the male population than the female and in the European population compared to other races. The prognosis of new onset AF depends on a multitude of factors. To name a few, we have AF classification, which we discussed earlier, which were paroxysmal, persistent and permanent AF. Also the existence of a precipitating event, underlying cardiac status, and risk of thromboembolism. However, to give some examples of differing prognoses, a young patient with holiday heart syndrome, which is AF precipitated by binge drinking, most likely has an excellent prognosis provided the avoidance of alcohol, whereas new onset of AF in an elderly person subsequent to, for example, an MI, 
with pre-existing heart failure has a much worse short and long-term prognosis. Prevention of AF can be achieved by minimizing modifiable risk factors, so essentially by changing behaviors that increase your risk of having AF. These include physical activity and sedentary lifestyle. The relationship between AF and physical activity is non-linear. A sedentary lifestyle is associated with higher risk of AF, but paradoxically, extreme levels of physical activity also increase risk of AF. Smoking can double the risk of developing AF, and obesity increases the prevalence of independent risk factors, some of which were mentioned earlier, such as hypertension, diabetes, MI, left ventricular hypertrophy, left atrial enlargement, heart failure, and obstructive sleep apnea. However, even when accounting for these risk factors, evidence has shown that obesity itself also increases risk of developing AF by half. So it's not just the consequences of being obese, but being obese itself will also increase your risk of AF. As I just mentioned, obstructive sleep apnea is an independent risk factor. This was found by the Sleep Heart Study, which showed a fourfold increase in prevalence of AF, with one third of participants having arrhythmias during their sleep. And finally, one of the most important preventable factors is high blood pressure. This is the most common etiological factor associated with the development of AF. So patients with hypertension have a 1.7-fold higher risk of developing AF compared with normotensive patients. And as a lot of aging patients have hypertension, this is a very important preventable cause. That's all from me. Thank you very much for that, Derek. I'm sure by now everyone is sick of AF, so I will summarise as briefly as I can. AF is a chaotic firing of impulses within the atrium, facilitated by a mixture of triggers and substrates. This causes the atrial muscle to quiver, and impedes its ability to contract. As a consequence, there is a stasis of blood within the atrium and the ventricles are shortchanged in their filling. This results in reduced cardiac output, increased strain on the heart and increased risk of thromboembolism, among other things. One should suspect AF in a patient presenting with an irregularly irregular pulse, with or without symptoms. These symptoms include things like palpitations, shortness of breath, fatigue and chest pain. The diagnostic features of AF on ECG are no discernible P waves and often a messy looking baseline and irregularly irregular ventricular rate. Patients can be acutely unwell with AF if they have a rapid ventricular response, so keep an eye out and treat appropriately. Speaking of treatment, remember to check your local guidelines and that immediate management of a shocked or compromised patient will revolve around early DC cardioversion and anticoagulation. For long-term holistic management, remember the atrial fibrillation better care ABC pathway that Chris spoke about. Thank you very much for listening. We will certainly learn a lot recording this and hope you enjoyed. This is by no means a complete review of AF and encourage you to read up on the topic and tell us anything interesting you find on our Twitter. Thank you for listening to WTF is VO. I hope you enjoyed the content. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Twitter and Instagram to discuss the episode and influence future episodes. Mm-hmm.